So the title of this seminar, which I was encouraged towards, is Leading Your Church Into Mission. Uh, it's actually wider than that in one sense. It's a, it really is about leading your church into mission. And so the first thing we're going to do is focus on principles. Because I think one thing that we might be prone to in our style of church is to be very quick to import method. And yet, there are so many features of the vessel that you are fishing from, including the team that you are fishing with, in the waters in which you're fishing, and so unique undercurrents in our culture that determine where we're going to be fishing in the future, that mean like a direct exporting of method is probably not going to serve you very well, and is one of the things I'm going to encourage you away from. So instead of that, what I wanted to do quickly is share a few principles, and then share six mistakes that I think churches like ours might be prone to making, and there's a reason for that, and that's that I've made all of them. And so if I've made all of them and we share a DNA, then it's highly possible we might have in some way a, a predisposition to doing the same sort of thing. And so um, just to tear up in order to talk through those principles and those potential mistakes that we might make. Um, we, we have our L plates on in being a church that is on mission, uh, but we've got some really strong convictions about what it means to be a church that's on mission. I've, uh, I've been in Basingstoke for a decade, and I've, I've served as an evangelist there on the staff for now five years, but I've been an evangelist and there since, for the whole of the ten years. And so I've experienced being working in London, commuting from Basingstoke, and trying to express an evangelistic gift in a context when the church was 20 people all in, including kids and babies, in a pop-up venue, in a community centre, through to 100 people in a slightly better venue in the middle of town, through to where we are now, which is something around uh, just over 200 adults and uh, 70 children, if you include our youth in that as well. And so have experienced something of leading a church into mission at different stages, and I felt like I've got my L plates on at every single step of that journey so far. And so that these are principles that are a function of some convictions, and it's probably worth sharing with you as well that these convictions uh, are necessarily impacted by my story. I... I I might lean a little bit hard on what I suggest because we've thought about this in a way which is a function of some prophetic words that we've got as a church and some experiences for me. I, I would suggest if, if you were growing up and you had a person in your class least likely to become a Christian, that was me. I thought people who, who became Christians had, had abandoned thinking. I was actively hostile to Christianity growing up. I would do sort of almost a mini stand-up comedy set about Christians during the lunch break to keep people entertained. If you had dismissed anybody as unlikely to become a Christian growing up at school, it was probably me. And yet a friend came alongside me and put up with me for long enough that I saw the difference in their life. Like the there was a kind of beauty in their life, in the middle of its brokenness, that destroyed my misunderstandings of what Christianity is. But, but what I desperately care about is people who are unreached, technically, 
Like I know there's, there's a constellation of factors that make up what it is to be unreached, including no indigenous witness, but, but I, I care about people who are small you, lowercase you, unreached. That is people, people that we are not well equipped to reach naturally, or where we're, we're gonna have to push our missiology to its limit if we're gonna reach people. And so it is part of that, the reason there's a picture of a plant up there is that we had a prophetic word encouraging us into that, and that's a picture of a mangrove. And the thing about a mangrove is it thrives in places that you wouldn't expect. And so, so part of who we are as a church in Mosaic is that we've been prophetically encouraged to be a church that sees the gospel bear fruit in places you wouldn't anticipate the gospel bearing fruit. Places that are, are small you unreached. And in doing that, I look after two areas of church life, bring good news and care for the hurting, or, or to use the language that we're actually more likely to use, I look after loving your neighbor to the brim, which is about the gospel, and I'll unpack it, and loving our town until the need has gone. And mercy and the gospel are together by design with me. So, let's jump into some principles. I'm bringing back Puritan preaching, because I've got like 50 points, and my first point's got three points. So, um, this is... You know, if, if there's a discernible pattern afterwards and you can detect it, tell me. Mission is why the church exists. Your sympathy to that statement is probably going to depend on the definition of mission that we use. But, but when you drive the definition down deep enough into the gospel, mission is why the church exists. David Bosch put it like this. If the church is in Christ, she is involved in mission. Her whole existence has a missionary character. When there was 20 of us, and we landed in Basingstoke, we had a conviction that we had arrived to change the story of our town one life at a time. It might be slow, and it might be grueling, but it's inevitable, because mercy made us who we are, and so the only way to not show mercy is to deny who we've become. It's a, it's a gospel identity discipleship issue for us. Mission is why the church is here. I read a book called The Natural Church Development Survey, which is a crack and read. I'd recommend it to everybody. The least compelling title of any book about church growth that I've ever read. But, but it struck me with something. Now, a lot of people, if you've read it, you know, it talks about like the image of a barrel. And there's seven planks on this barrel, and the lowest one determines how big you can get because it's about church growth. But the early chapters are about this. The church has got life in it. The church has got life in it because the Holy Spirit has birthed life into it. There is an impulse in the heart of God to reach people that is natural to a person who has received the heart of God in Christ and has responded to the gospel. There's a survey called the Talking Jesus Survey which bears this out. 97% of Christians think that the best thing that can happen to somebody is that that other person becomes a Christian. 97% would say that. We are theologically persuaded that it's a great idea for people to become Christians. One of our problems, and by the way, I I suspect that number might be low in our churches. But more than two-fifths of Christians in our churches think it would be a better idea if somebody else did it. It's not that they don't think God's working. They do. They just think the joy of seeing Jesus transform a life 
is a joy reserved for other people. And that's because of some habits that we have and some myths we've told ourselves that have, it hasn't taken the life away, the life is still there, it's just grown a dodgy trellis which makes it hard for the life to grow. So when we're talking about leading your church into mission, here's what, how that conviction cashes out for us. It's not about what you need to add now in terms of a superb strategy. If anything, it's about taking some stuff away and about taking away some, some dodgy trellising that we've put up out of habit to just let the life grow. It's about clearing ground because your churches are already persuaded. So what I want to do is diagnose the disconnect. All right, we'll move on. The church isn't the bread of life, but it is God's chosen distribution mechanism. That really is why our churches arrived in the town that they arrived in. God has a chosen distribution mechanism for the gospel to get it into the hands and ultimately into the hearts of towns which are starving, desperately starving. We're persuaded that that's why the church is there. And I'm going to do some driving that down a little bit more. All right, second thing is this. Humility is the ultimate missional mindset. We, um, we had Tom Head come to speak to us. And not only did he start on our Sunday morning with a joke, which made me extremely nervous because I didn't know where it was going. But on one of our days, he read something, and he kind of tweaked Philippians a little bit. And I thought, I like that. In fact, I'm going to really, really lean into that. And I'm going to do a complete inverted reading of Philippians 2 for you. Because I think it might be helpful. This is an inversion of Philippians 2. We, who in very nature aren't God, considered equality with God something to be grasped. So, we became disobedient. We exalted ourselves, rejecting anything that looks and feels like service. Especially the sacrificial and redemptive death, like the cross. When Zebedee's lads ask their mum to have a chat with Jesus so that they can sit at his right hand and his left when he comes into his kingdom, the issue is not that they have fallen short of a definition of good leadership. The issue is they've expressed something utterly antithetical to the heart of Christian leadership. Humility is the ultimate missional mindset for a couple of reasons. And I'm just not sure how hard to lean into it. That passage in Philippians 2 comes with a context, and the context, which is a massive paraphrase, is something a little bit like this. You see, the mission of God involves doing things and reaching people, but it also involves being something. Mission objective one is to be the church, to, to be a city on a hill, to be small p prophetic in the quality of our corporate life. And, and since you and I are an absolute nightmare, if we're going to achieve the mission which requires unity, then we're going to need to show each other grace. 
And the only way to show each other grace is humility. And since the mission involves unity, there are, there are aspects of the mission of God which we can literally only do together because it's what we demonstrate to the world in our quality of our corporate life together. Humility becomes the ultimate mission or mindset. The second reason is this. There is, there is a story in Ephesians 1 to 3 that makes sense of Ephesians 4. That, that there is a diversity of gifts baked in which means the church will lack some necessary equipping for achieving its function in the world. Right? You can only make sense of the gifts in Ephesians 4 when you make sense of the story in Ephesians 1 to 3. What God has done and is doing in Christ and in a people who are now demonstrating something to the world. Which means me, as an evangelist, I would love to think that if my gift finds maximal expression, which it should in the church then the church will automatically fall fully into mission. But the truth is that the gospel is the fountainhead for all four of those, all of the Ephesians gifts in Ephesians 4. So that without them, the church lacks this maturity to embody what it's meant to embody in the world. Three, worship is the context for all mission. early days of becoming a Christian as an act of raw logic, I came to the conclusion that it, it would just be a great idea for people to hear about Jesus. That, that as an act of logic alone, there was an urgency. I can't even remember who expressed it, but it stuck with me a lot. When I walked out for my lunch break, I passed 400 people. And in my day-to-day life, Image bearers are the only eternal thing that I can see. And yet I was still quite annoyed that there was a group of them in front of me in a queue because I wanted to get somewhere. Which means there must be something in me which massively values the trivial and devalues the eternal. But image bearers are the only eternal thing that we can see. So just as an act of raw logic, there is a desperate urgency and... I know in my Christian life I have majored on encouraging people into mission out of urgency because it's true. Take it a little bit deeper and we encourage people out of compassion. Pretty much whenever you see Jesus doing something, I think think the emotional state used to describe Jesus in the Gospels more than any other is compassion. So when somebody comes to Jesus and says, if you're willing, you can make me clean. Jesus, moved with compassion, says he's willing. So when he reaches out to heal, that's what he does. Jesus, when he sees a crowd, because they don't know which direction to go to encounter the kind of abundant life that Jesus brings, it says he sees them like sheep without a shepherd and moved with compassion, he teaches them. Jesus, when he does the bread of life discourse and he sees a group of people who are hungry on the top of the hill, he sees them, he has compassion, and so he acts. So whether it's about healing or preaching or meeting people's needs, it's always compassion that's the fuel. And I think we would often stop there. See, it's the logic of urgency that gets me moving. It's compassion that's the fuel. But mission in our churches won't be sustainable until you drive it down into worship. We'll loop back around to that again. And here's four, separate out the silver and the gold. 
That's intentionally cryptic. We made some calls quite early as we sat as a team talking about what it means for us to be on a mission. And this is about um, definitional things. I don't, I don't know if you've seen the movie Inside Out, but there's a moment where they're on a runaway train inside someone's mind. So if you haven't seen it, that's pretty weird. And two boxes fall over at the same time. One is labeled facts and one is labeled opinions. And they look exactly the same. And so they say, well, what do we do with them? And they say, just chuck them in any old box. Right? Because we get those two things very easily confused. I would suggest in church life, it is easy for us to get a couple of things confused, and that's gold and silver. So let me explain the kind of things that I mean by silver. Silver's quite good. <laughs> I'm not comparing gold and dirt, but silver are good things, like um, a big church. It's silver, but I tell you what's gold, big people who will do what Jesus tells them and go where Jesus tells them. I tell you what's silver, growing quickly. This is gold impacting your town for generations. See, silver is growing quickly and you get to see it. I mean, it's a good thing, isn't it? Gold is growth that you don't get to see because you've released other leaders. Silver is being productive. Gold is being fruitful. Silver is growing by transfer. Gold is growing by salvation. And by the way, these things, silver and gold aren't mutually exclusive. They don't necessarily collide. You can have both. I'm not criticizing both, but there is an impulse in us and our convictions as a team that leading our church into mission means we are very clear on what's silver and what's gold. In fact, it can create you problems <laughs> because we've said as much as that from the front, which is, look, we as a church would rather grow by salvation than transfer. And you know what happens? Christians think, I'd like to be a part of a church like that. <laughs> so the way that would cash out with us really practically is that we would have a goal which, which shapes our philosophy of a Sunday morning, that we would have a goal that 10% of all the adults in our Sunday morning meeting would not yet be Christian. That, see, so it's... All right, I'm going to pause there because that massively shapes our philosophy of a Sunday morning. Your mission is silver. God's mission is gold. And that is massively releasing for actually being fruitful more than productive. I think we are probably very prone to doing what Peter does at the end of John's gospel. I don't know, you know you're going to know it, but I don't know how familiar it is to your mind. Something like this happens. Jesus has a chat with Peter and he tells him the kind of death that he's going to die. And he, and he says to him, and that when you were younger, you went where you wanted to go. But when you're older, people are going to take you and they're going to stretch out your hands. And he does this to tell him the kind of death that he's going to die. He basically took for a paraphrase, says to Peter, uh, Peter, you're going to get crucified for me. And Peter does what we do. And he turns to look at John and says... What about that guy? What are you going to ask of that guy? What costs are you going to ask of that? I would, Jesus, I'm very interested in the ministry fruit you've got for that guy. And Jesus says to him these words, 
If I want him to live until I return, what's that to you? You follow me. That drives obedience in the mission down into worship. And, and the phrases, when it's worship, you know, Hudson Taylor said the phrase quite famously, if I had a thousand lives, I'd spend them all for China. And this is going to sound utterly ridiculous because of the town I live in. I reckon if I had a thousand lives, I'd spend them all for Basingstoke. A town which is just the butt of jokes, and, and it has been since Shakespeare. All right. I better crack on because, you know, I've got a two-year-old. I don't sleep much, and I'm always close to tears anyway. So um, <laughs> let's, let's crack on. Because here's what I want to suggest to you. Uh, I'm going to put it down to Providence that John is hosting this seminar. Here's six kind of mistakes that we might make which will hinder us in removing the trellis and therefore hinder us releasing the life which is already in our churches. And if you make all six, you will feel like you're on mission, but what you'll actually be doing is having a picnic on a well-worn path. Now, L plates on, I've made all six, and I'm going to push them to an absolute reductio so you see them in their extreme form. But I thought it would be better for you if I was a tiny bit provoking. Here's an exercise that I have done in a lot of church contexts. I find this is massively helpful for teasing out the heart of the problem and releasing people into mission. If, I'm not sure who started it, because I saw Glenn Scrivener do it, and there's an excellent book by Hannah Steele called Living His Story. But this is basically the exercise. You take two minutes, and you say, write a line down the middle of your page so that you get two columns. And in the left-hand side, I want you to tell me the personality traits of an evangelist. You can even do it now if you would like to do it. But tell me about them. Tell me about their personality. Give people two minutes and pause. And then say to them this. Now in the right-hand column, I would like you to write down the personality traits and the characteristics of the person who was most fruitful in you becoming a Christian. And I've done it in a lot of contexts, and this is what you'll get. The left-hand column will be this. Bold, courageous, fearless, passionate, good communicator. They are the qualities and attributes needed to impose a formula on an unsuspecting victim. Here's what you get in the right-hand column. Kind, generous, patient, loving, there when I needed them. Universally. Let me tell you, the power of that illustration is this. I know when I say evangelist and your friend, we're not comparing like for like, but here's what we're actually comparing. The kind of lives we imagine are fruitful and the kind of lives that actually are. We have fallen into habits in what we esteem and in the testimonies that we like to tell, which elevate the spectacular and minimize the miraculous. And we're going to do some more stuff around that a little bit later. Oh, look, I've just tackled them in completely the wrong order, which is what I told you I would do with no discernible pattern. If we stay faithful, let's start there. Let's just start at random. If we stay faithful, the culture will come around. I absolutely geeked out when um, 
when Tim Peake was doing his space stuff. And there's a particular area that I geeked out, which, which yielded probably the most unhelpful and unintuitive analogy ever, but we're going to have to lead into it because I've written it down. But I started thinking about how relative motion in space affects your experience of time, and it does. The quicker you get to the speed of light, in fact, the more it affects it. You can send two atomic clocks in different directions at high speeds, and they'll come back to the same place in different time. So you can go up into space. In fact, the same thing, if you've ever seen interstellar, you get time dilation from proximity to a to a center of gravity. The closer you are to something like a black hole, time's going to go different. You could be looking at each other the whole time, but you are experiencing time differently. If you would find that your apologetic is not working, I'd want to suggest that you're experiencing something a little bit like that. I think the gap between the 97% who think people should come to know Jesus, and if I'm honest, more than 40% who think that joy is reserved for somebody else, is a missiology gap. Not a theology gap, and not a gospel gap. <laughs> the gospel still works, but there is a missiology gap in the middle. In fact, I would say, if you have not changed your approach to mission in your church in 15 years, or even 10 years, you don't need to read a book on evangelism. You should read Global Humility instead. Because it's like the church has been lifted, times moved differently, and we've landed in a different culture 10 years on. I would suggest that the old ways that we did things, the old approaches, it, see, if, if we were particularly effective in the world as it was, then one of our dangers is to say, all we need is the courage to get back to doing that same form. But we don't. We need something a little bit different. So that leads us on nicely to being faithful to form over principle. What I'm going to do is I'm going to move this one quite distant so it's not very offensive and use it as a kind of intuitive example for us and then, you can, and then I'm going to let you infer what that means for mission in the short term. We have a DNA, and we have distinctives, and I love them, <laughs> which is why I'm here, and why we're in the family, and why we're in one apostolic movement. But we, we, we must share some stuff. It's likely that we would all imagine the Reformation is a moment in our family tree of what it means to be church. That, that we probably all feel a similar way about Martin Lloyd-Jones, because he loved the Bible. And we love the Bible, right? So we share some, some DNA in the family. And I'm pushing those ones back a little bit far. That means we come to esteem certain things. And, and if we're not careful, we esteem the form and not the principle. So here's one really far away. And I think I, it's almost always Tim Keller when I say a thing, and I can't remember who it was, but I think it was Tim Keller who said this. If you go back to the catechisms, you get something quite weird, and it's like a feature of them. I don't know if you've ever read them in much detail, but you get like um, one question on the Trinity, and then you get one question on humanity, one question on sin, one question on salvation, and then ten on communion. I don't know if you've ever noticed that. But I think it's true. And I think here's the principle, because what, the, what those catechisms were doing 
was teaching you how not to be a Reformation-era Catholic. That is, right, the gospel impulse all the way down for discipleship, which is to be transformed and to, to embody something different in the world. But the way you are going to set somebody free is through teaching them something about their preconceptions in their era, right? So, so the catechism, if we were going to do our own catechism, and, and we did one on the Trinity, one on humanity, one on sin, one on salvation, and, and ten on communion, we'd have kept the form, but we'd have lost the principle. Okay, so let's bring it a little bit closer to home. Because the questions that people are grappling with have changed vastly in quite a short period of time. And so, acts of worship in mission don't compete. The reason I'm leaning into talking about discipleship at this moment in time, when, when my, no, my natural leaning is to talk about evangelism, is because it is about equipping people to be fruitful in the world as it is. And so if we, because we esteem the Reformation preachers, and we esteem even Martin Lloyd-Jones, if we preach Romans and we teach people how not to be a Reformation-era Catholic, we've kept the form, but we've lost the principle. And so the gap is a missiology gap, which is to say this, we are connecting the same gospel truth with a very different culture. Post-modernity is not Christianity, and modernity wasn't Christianity either. They both share an impulse. They are both nested within a wider intellectual project which has views of the self and why we're here and what will make me happy. And that is where we should spend the 10 questions in our catechism, in my opinion. Mm, where do we jump to next? Renewal was an end in itself. There's a danger in what, in what you might hear me saying, because what I'm definitely not saying is abandon the paths that people fought for. Please don't hear me say that. I know that as the generation I am in, in our churches, to just enjoy the gifts of the Spirit in worship, people fought for that. And it cost people. And so please hear me. I'm not saying, don't worry about it, let those paths grow over. <laughs> I think Mick even referred to it today about a different thing, but he was saying, like, you don't tackle, there's a attention of what you focus on at one moment in time, and he said, like, legalism's always lurking somewhere, and, and the minimizing of the charismatics always lurking somewhere, right? So I'm not, I'm not arguing for just ignore the paths, but yet I, I think the, the Holy Spirit, if what David said in the seminar before is true in his encounters with the Holy Spirit, he's the most missional person I know. <laughs> A life by the Spirit because he has planted within our churches this missional impulse, the, the centrality of the move of the Spirit and the gifts in our, in, of the Spirit in our churches. I 
I think there's some more, more paths for us to head down through a sharper missiology. That is, that is when the Holy Spirit is poured out, it is a springboard into the kind of sacrificial love your neighbor thing. All right, I'm going to come back around to that. When it comes to discipleship, sometimes we can think two out of three isn't bad. I'm going to be super quick on this because, you know, I'm going to leave some space for people to have some asking questions. Here's what I mean by that. John Mark Comer has quite a helpful lens for just looking at what it means to be a disciple, where he puts it into three categories. Be with Jesus, become like Jesus, and do the things that Jesus did. I know, and it wasn't until I was in a session with Adrian Holloway (laughs) that I realized, I I had come to the conclusion that that our life groups were about going deep, not about evangelism. And I, had, and, I, and I realized I had sort of seeded an entire area of church life, and I'd done the very thing that I'm saying we shouldn't do. I had made evangelism an activity for specialists. That is, it had become a, a department of people with certain personality traits, like the green berets of the church, rather than something that everybody gets to do, and that the church, in my mind, rather than me as an evangelist getting to speak to everything so that everything we touch is about mission, I'd I'd embrace that for everything apart from our life groups because they were about going deep. And then I came back to my principles that acts of worship don't compete. Acts of worship don't compete. And that if James came... (laughs) having just freshly penned his letter to our life groups. I know it's possible for us to do two out of the three, to be with him, to become like him. As we walk free from stuff, we get baptized, we understand our identity in Christ. But doing the stuff that he did is where that is heading. I would say this, Sunday can build an incredibly healthy culture in evangelism. But it's what you do outside of Sunday that will determine whether you're actually fruitful. Using a Sunday, you can build this incredibly heavy, healthy culture of what it means to be on mission. And you can get it grounded all the way down into bedrock of a life of worship. You can fuel people with compassion But the habits we've put in place and the structure that we've got over the top means that unless there is an intentionality into us putting tools into people's hands and building a confidence in people, then it's what we do in the midweek that will be the limiting factor for whether we're actually fruitful. I'm going to go five. There's one last thing on there, so I might as well do it. And then we'll... um, Open up for some Q&A. My last danger, and so it might be a danger that you would experience too, is a danger to import method. Because I love the stories where people are being extremely fruitful, and so I want the model that they're using in order to be fruitful. When in reality there are features of my context, which means it may not work. In fact, there are convictions about 
what Jesus has asked me to do, which means it might really collide. I set up a little mini training thing called Equipping the Emerging Evangelists. I gather people from across the Commission family for whom I thought it might be helpful. And this was part of my intent in gathering it. I wanted to get significant, recognized evangelists in the room and give them two sessions and, and effectively get them to answer this question. We will be more fruitful as churches if we blank. Tell us. Tell us from your convictions and from your experience. Tell us from scripture and from your experience what will make us more fruitful as churches. And here's some things that I've found. Number one, I would suggest is this. Because, of, because diagnosing the disconnect is because the 97% think that Jesus is going to meet with people and yet we've persuaded ourselves that that is a joy reserved for other people. One of the best things that you can do, to, irrespective of the strategy you layer on top of this, is either a book like Living His Story by Hannah Steele, or a book called Bless, Five Everyday Ways to Love Your Neighbor and Change the World, to go to Dub Seminar <laughs> called Loving People Towards Jesus, because it is, a, it is about um, one of the functions of esteeming the stories of the spectacular is that we create a very high bar which creates a very low expectation. And so I am never saying you should tactically minimize what God has done in order so, so that people feel better. What I'm saying is this. When we meet publicly, we celebrate everything that God celebrates. So, so when someone in church sees their friend, which we had in our place, and their friend was struggling on the way to school, and they asked them, would you like to use my drive? And the person burst into tears, because it's what they'd always wanted, and they struck up a friendship. We celebrated it. We celebrated it because that was fueled as an act of worship where someone said in the language that we would use in Mosaic, they were about loving their neighbor to the brim. We celebrate when somebody crosses the pain line to open their home to live an outward life to make a friend. We celebrate it. We celebrate everything that God would celebrate. We celebrate when people truly listen to their friend. So I think, look, we, we got all these evangelists in the room and there was a really interesting range of answers that we've got to that question. If we, as a church, do this, we'll be more fruitful. And the answers are things like, because salvation belongs to God, the pressure's off, go and be interested in other people and interesting. Because God, because God is operative in the detail, your strategy really matters. Because God loves to raise up the margins to save the center, mercy ministry, not just with a gospel motive, but that has a gospel moment. Because we've created a high bar and low expectations, get your people to reimagine a fruitful life as loving people towards Jesus. Because for some people, being heard 
feels like being loved because they're so used to being ignored, why don't you engage with their real question? Really engage with their question. The the last one we had was about redeeming apologetics. And And the pun was intended. Redeeming apologetics because it's about engaging with people to clear ground for the gospel because it's apologetics which is not about putting someone on a platform in order to be like God's celebrity lawyer but about personally engaging and redeeming apologetics because I think it's got a bad rap because when it's truly listening it's an act of loving your neighbour to the brim to absorb their stories and their questions. And just as a freebie, I'm pretty much persuaded that at root, all questions boil down to two. One, do I need to leave my brain at the door? And that can be expressed in a load of ways about science or the Bible or the Trinity. But two, And this is most objections boil down to this. I have reason to believe from evidence that love is not at the heart of the character of God or not at the heart of the Christian faith. And that's suffering and some of what we've engaged with today and that's other religions. Ultimately, They all drive down to those two questions and the best thing you can do in response is to ask a question. All right. I'll tell you what I'm going to do. I'm going to pause there and we can make some time to ask some questions and kick the tires of what I've just said. And uh, John, you've got a mic. I'll let you you lead on that bit. I think that's good. It's working. If anybody wants to ask a question, I'll just come and bring you the mic. Is that the best way? Good for me. Yep. Wave a hand or something, and I'll... Uh, there's a hand. I see that hand. Aha. Thank you. Thanks, Ed. Um, you mentioned about sort of importing methods, and it's a different world we're in now. So what's your take on where Alpha is in terms of... I mean, we, it was working, we were doing it 10 mm. years ago... We're still doing it, but do you think things have changed? Have you adapted how you do it? Mm. Is there any change in the, in the approach at all, or a new yeah. one altogether? So, we go for alpha, and we go quite big on alpha. I, and I have come... Doesn't he have strong convictions for a man who talks a lot about humility? Okay, so I've come to this conclusion. Alpha works because of the tables. So 79% of people in the UK would be willing to have a conversation with a friend about faith if it matters to their friend. So, right, four in five people that become a friend with a Christian are happy to have a conversation. And they did some research onto the three characteristics that someone wants in in a discussion partner about faith. And the three things that came out were, number one, they don't judge me, no matter what I say. Uh, Number two, they let me form my own conclusions. And number three, they really believe what they say they believe in. 
I, I can't think of a better description of an alpha table than that. You don't judge whatever anybody says. You do allow them space for people to discuss together and form their own conclusions. And they're sat with the people who embody what they believe in and are there because they really truly believe it. And, I, I, and so um, we talked about it recently. I know people who would say, do, do the film series exactly as they do the film series because, I mean, it is a no-brainer and it's invested and it's fruitful. And we do our own talks because I think um, probably a function of the people that we are trying to reach in our context, the film series would set you up for a certain kind of church experience and it will be jarring when you come and hear me. And, and at a deeper level, I think, it doesn't really matter what you say at the front because it's all about the table. I don't mean that. That's a ridiculous push. But... But the reason they are, that they are fruitful is because of that. I think you could strip away all of the packaging if you had contexts where um, Christians don't judge what people say and they make space to form their own conclusion. You could do it with a film night. So we had a guy come and speak to us who said, why don't you do a series of film nights where you show a rom-com, The Search for Love, a sci-fi, The Search for Hope, and a crime fiction, The Search for Justice, and get people to talk about it. I think there's a whole load of context, but I'm more and more persuaded that why it works is that. And the question for me that comes off the back of that is how can I view in our churches that the discussion tables of Alpha are not the anomaly, that's actually the way we talk to our friends. That would be my thoughts on that. Thanks. You talk about the forty uh, percent that feel it's you know somebody else's job. Um, you know, in one Peter, it talks about always be prepared mm. to give a reason, and, and there's two senses of that word prepared. One is, yeah, I'm prepared to do it, <laughs> but the other is, yeah. I'm, I'm, am I prepared? Am I rehearsed? Do I know yes. what to say? And I wonder if the reason why some people don't want to you know, don't feel it's for them is because they don't feel they know what to say mm. and, and how, the, how to do it. So how do we equip people so that they are prepared to know how to give a reason? Yeah. Um, I, my first layer would be to, to equip people to say, um, you will be more fruitful in the long run if you give a question. That's step one, I think. Um, Two, um, I don't. I think again in that the the habits that we fall into, which are the ones that sort of keep us pinned to the walls and not getting going, um, particularly in the area of our testimonies, is that we have coached ourselves into preparing our testimonies in order to speak to Christians. So that the testimonies we tell are the testimonies that you're likely to hear at a baptism, because what we want to hear at a baptism is, um, this is the life I used to lead. Then I encountered Jesus, and it has radically changed in a moment. And then you find that you share that with your non-Christian friend, and it feels like a swing and a miss, because to them, and I'm certainly to steal someone else's analogy here, it sounds a little bit like dieting, which is I used to do fun things, but now I've met Jesus, and I've stopped. 
So, so learning to tell a story of not how we became a Christian, but why we became a Christian, is the essence of, I think, what we should be encouraging people to say. Um, and I'm sure there's sem- seminars, <laughs> even within this program, that will probably help, help you do that even better. Um, the questions have profoundly changed. So the talking survey, the talking Jesus survey, so that these are the questions that people are now asking, not of the church, but just in general. Uh, why am I here? What is the point? Is everything gonna be okay? And what will make me happy? I think sharing our stories in a way which connects with those deeper visceral questions is the way for us to, to go. Otherwise, what I find myself doing if I listed every question and put them in those two columns, do I have to leave my brain at the door? And um, love is either not at the heart of the character of God or the heart of the Christian faith. I find myself having to write that and then I'll do a proposed answer to each of those things, which to some degree feels outside of my capability to do. If we can drive it down that the answer we're ready to give is this, you shouldn't leave your brain at the door. You shouldn't give your life up for something that doesn't hold together. I get the impulse of your question. Let's find out an answer together. That is probably likely to be way more fruitful. And the same thing, I understand that you've got evidence. If God seems to get in the way of a loving relationship, how can you be the kind of loving God that you think I've been telling you about? But I've found it to be true. Come and see together. I think it's probably going to be a more fruitful answer. <laughs> oh, sorry. I'll, we'll have those two, and then we'll stop. All right. Okay, just a quick one. Um, with young people, more and more I feel like they've never actually seen a real Christian, heard the real message, experienced the gifts or anything, and they've got a foreign concept almost of what a, a Christian is. Have you guys found effective ways? Because more and more they just aren't Christians in their, their class, in their friendship circle, things like that, to mm. reach them. Um, just in your experience. I'm talking 12 to 18. We have a continuum of L plates in the life of our church. <laughs> I would say with youth, that's probably where it's most pronounced. Um, I, I suspect reading something like Tim Keller's How to Reach the West Again would be an extremely fruitful way to go about thinking about how to talk to youth because it teases out. I think our youth, generally speaking, are feeling that the big old intellectual project, which promised a lot, has broken apart at the seams, economically, relationally, we, we were promised something. We were promised we could have everything, and we've really gone down that road. I mean, they're never going to articulate it like this, but I think they feel the fracture, and I think that book puts voice to the kinds of questions that our young people are asking better. And I would imagine we, in our age group, underestimate the gap, and their age group overestimate the gap. 
And the true reality is somewhere in the middle, but we are probably, we, we, we probably feel less out of touch than they think we are. And so that book is probably going to be a help. We just uh, have one last question, I think. Great. Um, my question's really um, about the discipleship element, mm. because um, yeah. uh, we, we've got a context where we've got a lot of non-Christian mums coming out of our TOTS group. Mm. We've got a very small number of mums who are Christians within the group, um, and a few that are non-mums, <laughs> older or uh, um, yeah, or have older kids and it's just how, how do we disciple in that so when you've got more people than really you can manage <laughs> mm. realistically and, and just build that sort of culture into your church mm. that makes sense a a <laughs> do I want to lean into an evangelist's caricature here <laughs> I'll, take it, I'll take it back to the principle and um, I'll, th- I'll throw some scripture your way to, to do that and then we've got like one minute and then I'll polish it off. So there's, a, there's, a, there's an interesting feature in Galatians 2 um, which if you know the passage is where uh, Paul corrects Peter because he's clearly in the wrong. So, so if, you know the, if you know the passage um, Peter was eating with Jews and Gentiles and then some people came, um, some Jews came from Jerusalem, and he stops. And there's a very, in- there's a very interesting thing that I think in that, which is, which is helpful for the way that we would think about discipleship. Um, the, Paul challenges him because he's clearly in the wrong, but he doesn't say, Peter, you've done something naughty because partiality is bad per se. And he doesn't say, Peter, you've been a hypocrite, and that's not good. And he doesn't say, Peter, um, you've shown fear, and that is not a virtuous character trait. He says, I corrected him because he was clearly in the wrong. And he uses the word from which we get the word orthopedics. He corrects him because his feet weren't pointed at the gospel. So the principle for us is this. The gospel isn't just the foundation that we're working from. The gospel is the tool that we are always building with. Every New Testament letter's structure is basically this. Look at what you've become, the gospel. Up front, the gospel. And, and everything that falls out the back of it flows from gospel truths. So that in our context, in order to see people released into mission, gospel is the foundation that we are always working for. Mercy has made us who we are. The only way to not be on mission to our town would be to deny who we've become as a people. It's definitional. Salt and light are about what you are before they're about what you do. So it doesn't, you, light is going to shine. The question is, are you going to hide it? Right. So there's a definitional thing to it. So for us... Uh, we should get Tom here, who's our discipleship and growth lead, and he'd give you so many wise and wonderful answers. But the prin- in-principle thing for us is this, right? The gospel is a tool that we're always... It's the foundation that we work from, and it's also the tool that we're working with.